EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Oya Jordanian, an EU Futures Project Coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is May 3rd, and I talk to German journalist Christian Feld, a Neiman Fellow at Harvard University. Yes, uh, my name is uh, Christian Feld. I'm uh, currently a fellow with the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard, and uh, I'm working with ARD, which is uh, German public television. What is the future emerging now in Europe? I think it's it's really hard to make long-term uh, projections. Um, we have an interesting year. After having the Brexit referendum, now we had a vote in the Netherlands which turned out quite a little bit different than some, some people might expect it because uh, Gerd Wilders did not get into power. We had the, uh, the first round of the elections in France and of course we have upcoming elections in Germany. So I'm, I'm, I'm really a bit reluctant to say how this will turn out, but it of course is a super important year for, for Europe and for the European Union. How will they develop? How will they deal with uh, with Great Britain and, and that they are leaving now. How do you see the politics of Europe? Do you see the rise of populism as a problem? And because we see the rise of extremes both on the right and on the left, we're more concerned right now about the rise on the right. But how do you how do you see do you see it as a, it as a threat? I, I'm from, from Germany, so looking back on our past, uh, this is of course a topic that very much uh, concerns me because of what Germany did in World War Two and, and before. And to be honest, there has always been a problem with uh, right-wing movements, right-wing parties that even went into German Bundestag, um, the German parliament, over the years also in the, in the 90s, 1990s, and now we have this uh, right populism movements, we have parties that um, talk to a specific part of the population, so it will be interesting to see if democracy democracies are strong enough to contain that, because um, you, you figure out if a democracy is strong, if it can deal with uh, forces like that. So we've seen that in, in the Netherlands, the, the right-wing party did not get to power. We will see what happens uh, in the second round in France. And I'm pretty sure that the, the uh, alternative for, for Deutschland, the, the, the German right-leaning party, will uh, get into the, the German parliament. But I'm pretty sure... No, I'm, I'm totally sure that no no other party will, will even think about trying to do an uh, election, uh, to do an, uh, a coalition with them. But still, um, it's, it's, it's a super important topic um, to see if they uh, get stronger and how the other parties will react to that. You talked about the role of democracy and how can democracy contain actually the rise of populism. How do you see the role of journalism? Does journalism has a role in containing this kind of rise of populism? I would say 
that journalism definitely has a role in in I'm not I'm not quite sure if I want to say fighting um, those parties because the basic role of journalism is not to fight uh, specific parties unless they are like totally against the constitution. Um, I think it's it's important that journalism facilitates a dialogue that shows uh, wh why parties uh, like the AFD might be dangerous for for the democracy. So it's it's important that journalists uh, do good research that they try to figure out how to uh, to deal with politicians like that because often they are pretty smart they they do pretty smart interviews and uh, some journalists run into the trap that they they try to fight them openly in in an interview but they don't have the, the enough arguments or enough uh, evidence to to show that to them and sort of to to tear the the mask of of their faces so it's really super important that uh, journalism is is prepared, does its research, and then shows uh, why parties like uh, like the AfD might be uh, dangerous for for the democracy. Talking in more general terms, how do you see the role of journalism in the future and um, affecting the emergence of future in Europe? I mean, in the post-truth world, we have seen what has happened in the in the U.S., how the new American president has challenging media, literally challenging it every single day, media outlets. So how do you see, like, European media organizations look at what is happening in the States and they're kind of reflecting what might technically happen in Europe, even if not happen, that's going to have an influence on Europe. How do you see that journalism, journalists should react or actually even not react, but in Europe start acting to avoid this kind of post-truth world? If you want to put it in a positive way, then I would say there have never been more exciting times for journalists and for media outlets. But there are massive problems. When I came here to Cambridge uh, for, my, for my Neiman Fellowship, one of the major issues was how can journalism survive? Like on a economic basis, I'm I'm coming from a public broadcaster, so we are paid by license fees by by German households, so that that's not so much for me to worry about. But so many companies struggle uh, how they can monetize their journalism that that people are willing to pay for for uh, research and for good journalism. So this is what was one aspect when I came here, and then we had all this alternative facts. You said like the post-truth or post-fact, some say post-trust era. And this is maybe an, an even greater challenge for journalism, um, how to deal with that. And especially with an administration that acts so much beyond the, the lines that we know, how, how uh, journalism is confronted by, by, by governments. That's, that's not totally new. If you look at what, for, for example, Nixon did, Still, this is this is a new era. Uh, a president of the United States that openly, um, yeah, insults journalism and insults journalists who do their do their hard work. And if he doesn't like like a story, then he calls it fake news, which also breaks the term fake news. I I don't use it anymore because. It is used for in so many occasions that I personally like um, disinformation better. 
but there's so many different shades of, of disinformation, people intentionally telling lies or uh, just doing bad research. But coming back, back to your question, um, it's really important that, um, again, that, that journalism doesn't get into a uh, war against a president or a war against the government. Journalism has to do what journalism is about, like doing good research, research, doing good work and holding the powerful accountable. And they have to track whatever the Trump administration is doing. And if it's doing something wrong, it has to be called like that. And of course, there are different formats. There is like the classic news report, then you have analysis, and then you have commentary. So of course, as a journalist, if you think something is wrong, you can do a commentary and say, this is wrong. And um, this is not only reduced to the US, it is also important in Europe and in um, in Germany uh, too, my, my home country. So um, there's, there's, there's a huge challenge that uh, journalism is facing right now. Do you think journalists in Europe are holding let's say, authorities in Brussels, I mean, EU authorities accountable, are, are accomplishing this mission? How, how would you assess? I, I, think, I think I won't give a like, general answer because it's, it's such a mixed picture. If I look at my own very own company, uh, ARD, uh, the, the public uh, broadcasting network, um, we have a big office. It's technically the second largest foreign office um, compared um, on a ranking like after Washington DC and there are four TV correspondents and a lot of radio correspondents and I think they do a pretty good job because they are on the ground they they are living in Brussels in the institutions uh, which sometimes is is like a disadvantage because you might get too close to the system and uh, take over the thinking of the system and it's always necessary to step back a little um, but not every media outlet is equipped in that way and 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 has that that much uh, resources in brussels and that's a problem and I, I i understand why other media outlets are not able to do that because they don't have the money because it, it is it, it's it's a factor of cost to to have an to have an office to have people on the ground but if you're covering brussels from say and i'm just making uh, names up from from stockholm or from from rome it's really harder then you read press releases and maybe you can phone people but it's so much better to be underground and uh, to do better coverage coming back to the issue of democracy a common tenant in many definitions of democracy is choice, the freedom to make freedom to make decisions and determine our own future. And Nicholas Luhmann thought that what is unusual about democracy is it that it keeps open the possibilities of future of choice. So what do you think what is the role of democracy in actually influencing the emerging future, especially in the context of Europe? So if the question is, is democracy the only option or do we have other options? Well, I, I, I know that there is a broad spectrum of, of opinions on how the, the, the future looks like. And if, if like democracy in the way that we have it right now with parties, with institutions, if that is the right way. 
uh, I I'm aware of all the problems that institutions um, have and people in power that might get corrupted by power itself and by earning a lot of money. Um, so it's 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 always necessary to have a super close look and not not to take it for granted the the system that we have right now. And uh, I think there is a lot of elements that can be improved. For example, giving people more power to uh, have their say and that that, that, that is heard uh, and brought into the process and also have a close look what uh, lobbyists do, how, how they can influence uh, the way that uh, policies are, are shaped. So there's a lot to do and this is not a perfect system. Still, I sort of believe in in uh, the democracy that we have right now and I haven't seen a better system so far um, and I would try to improve the institutions and hold them accountable instead of like tearing it all down and saying uh, uh, democracy doesn't work um, but that's 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 uh, that's a tough job that that's uh, lying ahead of us and especially with the European Union itself the old narrative of the peace project which is super important but i think it it although it's it's a major achievement and no borders and we have one currency like most of the countries in the european union still i think that for a younger generation this narrative has to be renewed and i think the the, the basic the basic challenge that the european union has to has to tackle is make clear that it's that it that it helps people that it doesn't help democracy as a abstract concept that it doesn't um, help politicians or parties that it helps people so is the European Union able to solve the the important issues that that people care about and if they if they get the impression that that doesn't work and that it's it's not about people what people what what politicians in brussels are doing then they will lose trust in the system do you see that europeans as a european do you feel you have any other tool to actually impact political processes both at at the national level and at the supranational level beyond going to elections both at the national and you know participating in the european parliamentary elections i i think that uh, pressure from people on the streets is is a is a very valid and, and and fair tool i will try to illustrate that with one example uh the ttip the the trade agreement that the european union i want to say wanted to do with the united states and that's been discussed for for a long while and to be honest TTIP, a trade agreement that hasn't moved people on the streets in their everyday life over decades. So there was some kind of, uh, I don't care about that. But then came like TTIP and uh, some, you could say lobbyists, NGOs, activists, they were pretty smart in, in turning that into an issue that people cared about. They appealed to to like health issues, how that might affect health uh, of of consumers, and how European standards might be weakened down. I'm not quite sure if all the time their arguments were like 
researched to the very end. But still, to make an, an abstract trade agreement with four capital letters to a major issue that every every European knows about and, and has, has to um, think about, that's an amazing issue. And as you see, when the European Union uh, negotiated with, with Canada on the CETA agreement, they were influenced. They knew if, if they don't fight hard for, for a good agreement, and we will see if that is in the end a good agreement, but if, if they don't fight hard for a good agreement, people on the street and voters will let them know. So apart from going to the voting booth uh, every other year, yeah, I think um, showing your opinion in social networks or out in the streets in, in manifestations, that's a super important issue. Tell us a little bit about your project as a Neiman Fellow. So I, um, I, I care about journalism, as you might imagine, otherwise I wouldn't be a Neiman Fellow. But um, one job of journalism is holding the powerful accountable and explain sort of the, the political system to citizens, to voters. And I think to do that, you have to know how the system works and you should be able to explain that to, to your audience. So I would expect that a journalist writing about politics or broadcasting about politics should be able to explain the voting system and have an idea how lobbyism works. And now, if we're talking about the powerful, I think we have to talk about companies like Facebook, like Google, that are super important for the way that we communicate, that the political discourse is structured. I don't want to say that in general those companies are bad or evil, um, that would be uh, that would be way out of line. Nevertheless, it's important to hold them accountable because so much of of the political discourse is is operated uh, over the platforms, over Facebook and over Twitter, over Google, and we have all those issues of misinformation, hate speech, all that. So. I would say, uh, and this is my proposal, and I want to try to to offer a solution for that, is that journalists should be able to describe how our digital world works. I don't want that uh, that they all are able to code or whatever, but I think they should have general sort of understanding what artificial intelligence, big data, machine learning platforms, what that stands for, and that they are able to explain that in simple, in a understandable language to their to their audience, so that in the end they are able to hold the powerful accountable. And uh, I haven't quite figured out how much in, into detail um, journalists should go, but I think as they should have a basic understanding of, of, of politics and of, of, of business or the economy, they should have a basic understanding of the digital world, which on the one hand, of course, means they should be able to use Facebook for their own coverage or distribution of their content, but there are enough um, programs that teach that. I want to give them sort of a basic understanding of how the internet works. In what kind of Europe would you like to live? 
Well, that's that's a bull question. Uh, and and <laughs> in what kind of Europe? Um, I would give you some like uh, attributes or some some aspects of the Europe that I want to live in. I very much uh, like the open borders, and uh, at least within the the European Union. And I saw during the time when there were terror attacks in Paris and Brussels, how that can change. And suddenly you are at the border to France and it takes you another hour before you get into the country. So uh, I don't want to go back to those times. Most of all, I think I would like to live in a Europe where everybody is able to speak his opinion, unless it is totally against laws so um, I don't want to live into, in, a, in a Europe where people can deny the Holocaust because that, that shouldn't be possible but freedom of speech is a very important issue and I want, would like to live in a Europe where people respect other people's opinion and that before like shouting them down they should say they, sh they should listen to each other and then figure out what, what is the best solution. And I think we are moving away from, from that type of Europe right now, where everybody is, not everybody, but most people tend to live in their own echo chamber and, and, and filter bubble. So we have to burst those, those bubbles and uh, accept that sometimes we, we need to have hard conversations and we have to hear opinions by others that are uncomfortable. And then we have to deal with that. Is there anything else you would like to talk about? Yeah, if, if, if you ask the general question, if, I, if that's something that I would like to talk about. Um, yeah, maybe that sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm really surprised. Having watched this, the, the, the political uh, scene in Brussels for so long, um, I was really surprised by Giefer Hofstadt, who's the uh, chair of the Liberal Party, When there was uh, this, the, the process of finding a new parliament president uh, in Brussels, he tried to cut a deal with the, with the Italian five-star movement, which is totally against uh, the Europe that we, we have now. And his own position, like Giefer Hofstadt's position, is so much like we need more European integration. And he, and he is really passionate about Europe. You could see that when he, in, in, when recently he held that, that speech uh, confronting uh, Viktor Orban of, of Hungary and he was praised for that and that's, that's totally fine. But that even a person like him who's so passionate about Europe, if, if it's about like getting into power, into a powerful position to try to cut a deal with a anti-EU uh, party, uh, I was really surprised and disappointed by that. Thank you so much for this interesting conversation. Sure. been listening to the EU Futures Podcast, 
a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C.